Hello, hello. What's up? What's good? Ni hao, bonjour. Welcome to the Any Given Runway Show. I'm your host, Randall Carlton Green. Any Given Runway celebrates the exploration of new cultures by highlighting some of the most interesting, creative, adventurous people in the world. Everyone has a story. Each person a scholar. Fantastic show for today with our second compilation recap episode of the year. Throughout the rest of 2020, our episodes will feature snippets from previous episodes from some of my favorite guests. A brilliant way to catch up on some of the best conversations of the year while allowing me to take a rare break from interviews. I sincerely wish I was using the extra time to be somewhere traveling, but honestly, you'll probably just catch me reading or following the NBA as the season has kicked off. Durant looks silky out the gate. He's my MVP pick. Today's recap episode features two of the most adventurous men you'll ever meet. First up, we have Finn Christo from Manchester, who first joined the show back in May for episode 45 to share his adventurous experiences as he rode across the Atlantic. Yes, Finn and a group of his lads rode across the Atlantic Ocean. The story is a remarkable tale of endurance. And since I first chatted with Finn, I don't think a day has gone by that I haven't thought about that unforgettable adventure. Calling it arduous would be an understatement, but Finn has remarked that the positive experiences outweigh any of the difficulties that he faced in the tempest we call the Atlantic Ocean. If you want to listen to our full conversation, it is episode 45. Later in the episode, we'll have another elite adventurer from Scotland, Andy Torbett. When did it go from I got your attention to we can actually do this? Uh, I've got to be honest, the we can actually do this didn't really kick in until a couple of weeks before the race, if I'm completely honest, at least for me. Um, it was always, you know, this this kind of theory, this thing that was going to happen in a year and a half's time. Uh, and it wasn't until we were in Lagomera and saw our boat against the other boats uh, in the harbour you know, got the equipment, got signed off in terms of our safety checklist and our um, uh, prep. And then we thought, wow, this this is actually happening. This is actually, you know, we're, we're going out onto the ocean. And uh, I really hope the past year, uh, year and a half, two years worth of prep is was enough. So how was the reaction from family and friends initially when you said, hey, I'm going to Row across the the Atlantic, and they're probably the, the the what you're rowing across the ocean. Like, what was the what were some and what were some like maybe the extreme were people doubting you and were sure. there any memorable things that people said? Um, so I think the the one thing that kind of sticks out is oh you're sailing across the ocean, and you kind of wonder how the verb changed in in two yeah, seconds. Yeah. Like no no we're not sailing we're we're rowing in what a rowboat? Oh really? You know it was that kind of having to kind of go back and explain it's you know there's no sails there's no engines all human powered um so for myself it was a very uh serious conversation with my parents um this is what i'm planning to do this is why i'm going to do it um with the my wife and everyone else they were, they were like yeah okay great have fun be safe let us know if you want us to sponsor you because uh, it was pretty much less uh, unexpected to come from me um, but then with the wider family, uh, it's a Greek family. You know, they worry if you've eaten that day, let alone if you're going to go out onto the sea for 59 days. So it was uh, a bit more of an involved conversation there. Um, in terms of whether or not people believed us, we had the boat from the very get-go, which yeah. was great because you could just, you know, yes, this is the boat that we're going to row in, um, take it out across the town put it in parks, uh, take it to talks and just, you know, physically show people this, 
29 foot fiberglass boat is what we're going to be stuck in for a couple of months. Oh, it's, it's so fascinating and incredible. Tell me about the process of planning both the, the physical preparation, how you got yourself ready, the mental preparation, and then finally the actual tactical aspect, because I'm sure you didn't just go out blind and just jump on the water. You, you probably looked at other trips or other things. And how did that all come to be? And what were some sure. of the aspects of that? Um, so in terms of the actual prep itself, we spoke to as many um, prior ocean rowers as we could, um, what we could expect, um, what their experiences were like. And um, whilst it was incredibly appreciated, uh, it was absolutely completely different to what we experienced with, you know, all the stories that we heard in the videos that we saw on YouTube. It was like a lad's holiday, you know, sunny weather, do a bit of fishing, um, do a bit of swimming, come back with an amazing time and a great six pack. And instead, we had possibly some of the worst weather at that point for uh, an ocean crossing. So it was just dire um in terms of the and actual that wasn't, you hadn't expected that weather that was uns- that was surprising for you absolutely yeah we we yeah it was just horrible um and then uh, in terms of the actual physical side of things we were very lucky to work with a local university who had a um sports science coach who basically put us to our paces uh, a lot of endurance training a lot of um conditioning training and it was more used getting used to the monotony of things getting used to you know i'm I'm used to going in training 45 minutes to an hour maybe an hour and a half but these were like three four hour sessions um so just getting your head right in terms of becoming uncomfortable um mentally we spoke to a few sailors um who had us doing weird things like shitting in front of each other and you know um just having these very open and honest conversations about what we were afraid of and who we trusted and who we didn't trust as well, which, you know, I've never taken a shit in front of another man before, let alone someone staring at you in the eyes. So that was a, a bit of a weird one. And when you find out the reasons why that example in particular, it was because on prior voyages, people who had been maybe a bit too squeamish or shy to, to go to the bathroom in front of other people, in some cases actually made themselves ill you know, from from not going. Oh, yeah. So it was there was always a reason behind it, but it was about trying to be comfortable with each other, uh, being very open and honest, um, and just getting your head in a, in a place where you're not seeking comfort, you're seeking these opportunities to make yourself uh, as uncomfortable as possible, regardless of if it's a small discomfort or not. Wow. <laughs> um <laughs> how long did the journey take so we had planned for um between six and seven weeks and we ended up being out there for almost three months or so 59 days altogether. um so it was um again absolutely not what we expected yeah. and it was you know you see the guys doing it last year and i don't know if it's going to go ahead this year with everything else that's happening now but you know, they're smashing it in 35 days and, and less, you know, these amazing records that you're saying. And we we got across the line in 59 days. So, um, yeah, it, it, it took a while. You mentioned in your TED Talk that the camera played a specific role for you. What was the role of the camera for you? The, the camera was basically a, a source of objectivity a little bit. It was a different perspective in the situation because um, for most of the time I'm freezing cold uh, soaking wet, starving, and uh, pretty much naked as well. Um, so it's just not the, the nicest of situations to be in um, for 
an hour or so, let alone a couple of weeks at a time. So having that kind of external locus meant that I was able to kind of reframe the situation a little bit. And it wasn't anything that I'd read in a book. It wasn't anything that I'd I'd heard from anybody else. It was literally just, this sucks. This really, really sucks. But it's also a pretty amazing opportunity. How does it look? How would it look like to somebody else kind of thing? And and just kind of removing myself from the situation a little bit and creating that little camera. I could see myself and straight away, you know, the the training and the, the coaching that we'd had, was I sitting correctly? Was I sitting up straight? Was I pulling properly with legs and arms? Um, was I geared in properly? Did I have my um, my tags on? All that kind of good stuff. Um, and I just came in straight away and because there was a benefit to doing it and just carried on doing it. I like that you mentioned it was ob- uh, it was objective and that uh, you know you can really get an honest look at how things are and in, both on performance and just as a as a reminder of what you're actually what you're doing. You had the rowing part that was one thing we all know about that and then but there was also a lot of administrative duties that you had to take care of when you sure. weren't rowing. So what were some of the things that you were doing when you weren't rowing? So the the shift pattern was two hours on, two hours off. Um, so you row for two hours, then you have two hours off, and then you get back on the oars again. Uh, and that means that within the two hours that you're not rowing, that's your opportunity to to rest after your jobs are done. So um, some of the jobs would be something as simple as going for a piss, um, washing yourself, um, making sure that the the water is being bottled. So we had a a machine that would convert seawater into drinkable water. So making sure that other people's bottles were topped up. Um, there was uh, food making, so we had um, dehydration, uh, sorry, dehydrated food packs, which you would mix with water. Um, so make sure that, that you know those are ready for everybody else coming off shift. Cleaning the solar panels, which if the boat is kind of going up and down like a madman, and you've got this weird squeegee, and you have to kind of climb up onto the side of a boat and clean these solar panels. Um, it's just a very weird kind of situation to be in. And then ultimately, as the boat began to break down. Um, just minor fixes, bearings on the rails, um, bits and pieces that were falling off the boat, um, and just making sure that things were as tidy as possible, as clean as possible, and as safe as possible as well. So it all took an incredible amount of time. So you end up spending ultimately, I mean, you could probably get it down to less than an hour as the weeks went by, but then you think, you know, I've got 15 minutes to get some sleep get your head down and then, you know, you've got to get up at least a good four or five minutes before your next shift starts to make sure that you're ready, that you can get back on the oars and, and carry on. So it was just that continuous process. Wow. Wow. With that, was that for a 24 hour cycle? That was for all of it. Just continuous. So for the entire trip, for the entire trip, there was no period of time where you slept for longer than two hours. The only period that I slept probably more than two hours was when the boat flipped. Um, so at one point, the, the, <laughs> so the only time it happened was when something bad happened. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So the, um, the boat flipped and, um, myself, uh, our skipper got washed overboard. Uh, so did everything else that was on deck, climbed back on board. And I think I got, uh, I might be wrong, but it feel, it feels like a, a you know, a, a little bit of a holiday, but I think I got like maybe two hours, two hours of sleep, um, and then eventually got back into the rhythm of things as well. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I think that was that was pretty much the longest, you know, off shift. And then when the weather got really bad, you couldn't row. So you put out a power anchor and you'd stay 
you almost had like a little alcove that you could close a door into uh, and you'd stay in there for as long as you could. And that was hell, you know, four grown men uh, in a very small space, uh, the boat spinning around like a washing machine. And uh, you're in there for a good couple of days as well until the weather clears. The physical preparation that you mentioned with the, the person from the university helping you out, was that enough? When you, Did it actually pay off or was it not even near what you needed? And then with that, mentally as well were you, were you did you feel you were mentally and physically prepared enough for the trip i think if we'd gone on the trip that we'd expected we would have been prepared and, and all good to go but considering everything that could have gone wrong went wrong mm. um uh, no we weren't prepared and yeah. um I, I, even now i look back and wonder how the hell we survived we were extremely lucky um so it's uh, it's a wonder that we got across at all if i'm completely honest um, considering what we expected to happen and then what actually did happen. Gosh, it, it just seems like so many things went wrong. How does the body change after two, three months of the physical things? One thing I, I'm still kind of focused on the, 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 the lack of sleep that you were getting and, and yeah. you never really were falling into deep sleep. It was for for this, for the entire duration you were out there. How does the body change? What were some things that you found differently from when you first set off? So um, sleep-wise, because you're well, because you're uh, sleep-deprived, you start to hallucinate. Um, mm. And then I used to just panic about me in particular. I used to panic about being late on shift. So I'd get off, do my jobs, get my head down, and then immediately after, wake up and then come back out. And it could be a good half an hour into the other person's shift. I've come out on deck. I'm not rigged in. Um, I'm half asleep, and I walk over and start nudging him out of the seat, and he's turning to me and going, "What?" Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's, it's my turn. It's like, no, get your head back down. You know, it's that was a weird one for me um, in terms of just not having my head right without the the, the ad- adequate sleep. Legs atrophy because your legs aren't really doing much work uh, on a rowboat. Um, you stink. That was the other thing as well. A good month in, I'm looking around thinking, what the hell is that? And then realizing it's me. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, uh, sores all over your hands. Um, the salt water just seems to eat away at everything as well. So you have salt wounds. So after every shift, if you can, just try and wash as much salt off your body as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the, there's a before and after picture. I think you uh, showed in, in one of my talks when I got off the boat and I looked like I've just recently survived a, a prisoner of war camp, let alone... Yeah. I'm always jealous because some of the, the rowers that I see coming off and completing their journeys these past few years, they're coming off looking like um, men's fitness cover models, you know, yeah. and I just look like this, this anorexic cat that survived uh, um, yeah, a downpour. I'm very jealous. Uh, were there days where you physically were like, I can't, I'm done, and then what'd you do to power through? And, and I guess not just physical days, but were there mental and emotional days where you're just like, I'm done, I can't. And then what did you do to keep going? So physically, there were moments where you'd be sat and you're moving and you're genuinely questioning if you're generating any kind of force. Um, and it's only looking at the GPS and you, you realize that it's probably more the currents that are moving you as opposed to you moving you um, and feeling incredibly guilty about that massively guilty um feeling like you're letting the team down feeling like you're letting everybody else down because you should be this big strong rower rowing across the ocean and you know instead you're not obviously with time and hindsight and a bit more objectivity about the situation um i've got a a, a much more healthier kind of perspective on that 
Um, that's that's the physical side of things. Mentally, it was never a question. I loved mm. being out there. I loved the challenge. I loved you know it was two years, almost two years worth of prep and work to get to that point. The experience itself, I can't recommend it enough for anyone. Um, mm. Probably one of the highlights of my life. So mentally, I absolutely loved it. Loved being out there. Can't wait to go again. Wow. My first question then, following that up, is you just we've just talked about all the horrors and the miserable times, <laughs> and then you just said it was not, it, you would recommend it to everyone. Why? Oh, 100%. Why is that? I think there's there's a lot of value in putting yourself in a situation that challenges you. Um, I mean, I think that everyone's experiencing that right now, if I'm completely honest with what's happening. Um, and it's, um, some of it's just bringing you out of your norm, bringing you out of your routine. Um, and the other part of it is testing parts of yourself, testing parts of your, I guess your, uh, your makeup and seeing what sticks, what doesn't, yeah. what's valuable, what isn't. And then kind of reframing or restructuring yourself around, around that kind of, um, insight. I think that's extremely valuable. Um, and if it wasn't rowing across the ocean, I would have done something else stupid as well just to kind of get myself in that kind of situation. Um, and I, I genuinely think that's an experience that yeah. everyone can take value from. Hey, what a story. Uh, it's, it's hard to even fathom that he accomplished this feat. And I'm excited to see what's next in this future. And hopefully on his next ocean row, he gives me a call. Be sure to follow Finn on Instagram and Twitter. Next up, we have Scottish adventurer Andy Torbett. When it comes to some of the most dynamic resumes of the guests featured on the show, you'd be hard-pressed to find one more outrageous than Andy's. He's not just a professional skydiver, but he's a skydive competitor and record breaker. He's an established scuba diver. And on top of that, while serving in the military, he defused bombs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know what you're thinking. What a cool dude yes one of the coolest guys I, i've ever chatted with when people talk about the dos equis most interesting man i immediately think of andy torbett so let's go ahead and bring on scottish adventurer andy torbett who's first featured back in may episode 49 and let's learn one of the interesting parts of your background which is just one of my favorite resumes i've ever read but one of the interesting things that i was reading about you 10 years in the british forces including time working on bomb disposal now i've i've never asked the next sentence i've never asked this but aside from patience tremendous patience that that is what lessons did you learn disposing bombs i learned how to deal with risk um and actually the things I do now, so be it high altitude wingsuiting or cave diving or rock climbing or stunt work, um, and bomb disposal all looks incredibly dangerous from the outside, but it's not. Well, it is at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you get a reputation for being an adrenaline junkie or being fearless or being brave or being, you know, a lunatic, and none of those things are true. I'm probably the most cautious and a paranoid person you like to meet that's why i'm still alive you take a situation that is inherently initially very 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 dangerous you know with obviously if it goes wrong it's pretty binary i mean cave diving and bomb disposal are very um akin in that if they go wrong you're dead pretty much you know with with a few a few nuanced other ways it could go but it tends to be if it goes well and you're alive it goes badly and you, and you die um however you can do things to make it safe 
yeah. you know you you can control it you can you can make it safer um so and, and my approach to risk and and high risk and how actually to make it safe so that you don't need to be brave you don't need to be scared either because you know what you're doing is not going to kill you um was all kind of learned doing bomb disposal so you know you know, again, I, I don't think being a bomb disposal officer is particularly special because loads of my mates did it and still do it. So it's like, you know, you you, you, kind of, you, you see the world through kind of relativity. And if, if, you're in a, if you're in a regiment of 120 bomb disposal officers, diffusing bombs does not make you special. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, none of them were crazy, you know, death wish adrenaline junkies. Yeah. They're all just calm considered intelligent cautious individuals um uh so so yeah that's kind of i think that that really that that has gave me the tools to deal with the risk that i still use today to do the work that i do now that's a great point I, uh, you, you mentioned that they're not crazy people adrenaline junkies just because they dispose bombs it's actually the opposite do you feel that uh, a lot of times people say that pressure is a privilege? Do you feel that that added pressure of disposing a bomb or some of your explorations that it allows you to focus more? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So we um, again, I'm, I'm not alone in this. All the all the, all the guys that I know who, who used to do, do the same work, work as me, we all we all spoke about this thing called and this thing called the long walk. So if you imagine you go to defuse a device and you're called in. Um, there's a, a cordon set up around your know, perimeter around the, the, the device and only you're allowed in there. You've got a team, a number two, maybe a number three, but only you are allowed into that area. Um, and you might be quite a junior, you know, soldier. You might be a, a junior officer, maybe a lieutenant or a, or a junior captain or maybe a sergeant or a staff sergeant. So, you know, fairly low ranks. And the people controlling the whole situation, the, the cordon and, and it is going to be much, much higher ranks than you. But you, you tell them what to do. You're telling them that they've got to, this size has got to be, this is what's got to happen. You're, you're contacting the case of someone like Iraq. I was, I was contacting the, the, um, you know, the head of all air assets for Southern Iraq saying, right, there's no, there's, I'm telling you there's now no flies around this area. So a lot of resp- and a lot of responsibility and a lot of different things going on in your head. And if it was in the UK or Northern Ireland, we had problems there. You'd be liaising with the police and you know other army units and you know way way above your pay grade really. And then suddenly you could turn your 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 radio off uh, or your phone or whatever your communication device was. You could turn that off and you stepped inside you know the danger zone effectively. And it was incredibly zen. Yeah, because suddenly yeah, yeah. it's just you no one could shout at you no one could speak to yeah. you no one could call you up you know no one could get on the radio nothing else in the world mattered nothing mm-hmm. else you know you're in this own, you're in this lone little, little bubble world and you do the long walk the walk down to the and i tell you what it was it was one of the most stress relieving things in the world just to wander down towards the device and the other thing was a friend of mine pointed out once he went the other thing is as far as you're concerned everything is always going to go well because the second it doesn't, you're not going to know about it. You know, so, um, <laughs> you know, for the rest of your life, everything's going to go well. Um, so, you know, it, it's genuinely, um, and I think snipers say the same thing. Because um, I've done a lot of sniping, but but I'd friends with professional snipers, and they said you know, it's quite a zen experience. And, and the bomb disposal could be not always, but could be actually quite a kind of quite a sort of mindful experience. Yeah, and I, I mean that makes sense, and I think 
like you mentioned, being able to talk about people or talk, give orders to people above your pay grade, it probably gives you a lot of confidence too. Now, you've also had a long career as a diver starting when you were very young, exploring things and everything underwater. What is it about exploring underwater that attracts you? The first thing is it's really easy um, <laughs> because, because well, you know, the vast majority of the world now has been explored, um, unmarked, you know, with Google Earth and that sort of stuff. And yes, there is still places left to explore uh, on land. Um, <clears throat> me, it's very difficult to find new places. Um, whereas underwater, it's incredibly easy. You know, I, I give talks, even at schools, you know, and, and even some of the UK. So the UK is a very, very, very small island. Um, and we've still got... 28,000 miles of coastline we're, we're tiny and then we've got about 10,000 miles of rivers and about 10,000 lakes admittedly that's because it rains an awful lot in the UK but <laughs> yeah. uh, you know and the vast majority of that has never been explored the underwater yeah. part has never been been seen with it with the human eye and the vast majority of it is a is like a few feet deep um I was going to say a few meters there. I'm trying to translate. Oh, yes, you know. But um, we're, we're a universal show. We got it. <laughs> you know, well, it's going to be like one, two meters, you know, three, six feet deep, which is all reachable with a mask and a snorkel. You know, you don't need. Yeah. I mean, although I use all this high tech rebreather equipment and that sort of stuff, which you know, it is. But you, so it's, it's the first thing I say. It's remarkably, if you want to be a genuine explorer. I think it's an off-use word that's been slightly corrupted. That people, I'm exploring my local park. Well, really. Um, if you want to go somewhere that no one else has been before, it's actually very easy to do if you're willing to go underwater because there's so much left of it, you know, undiscovered. Um, and then for me, the stuff that I do more and more nowadays, which is sort of deep technical diving and deep cave diving, you know, we're using rebreathers, which is the same technology astronauts use when they're doing spacewalks. Um, it is like it is like going to outer space. You know, it's a completely alien planet. The, the underwater world is the most hostile environment in the world for us as human beings. Um, you know, forget the North Pole, forget ah, it's my, mm-hmm. I think Hi. Hello. Let's just bring them through. Um, <laughs> if we're still rolling, uh, that was just my uh, my fiance bringing a, a cup of coffee. Um, we'll keep it on. We'll keep it in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> that personal touch. Um, um, she's a jazz singer, Becky Biggins. Uh, you want to check her out? Um, the the where was I? so so yeah we use all this, this technology I and mean, you are in, in in a space you know because forget the South Pole or forget the top of Everest um underwater is the most alien environment we we have on Earth um so you get to be you know, it's like being a science fiction film it is it's it's, it's, it's really cool uh, uh, but with it brings certain requirements because we are as wholly reliant on the equipment we carry with us to keep us alive as we would be in space you know which but i quite i quite like that I quite like that there's you know there is a need to bring your a-game if you're doing a deep cave diving exploration then you have to have put the work in up to that point to make sure you're you're ready for the task and then bring your a-game in the day because it's not a forgiving environment well that sounds awful lot like bomb disposal yes and i mean you know of all the things i do the cave diving, the free diving, the climbing, the skydiving, the thing the thing that is most directly, I would say, akin to bomb disposal is cave diving. Hmm. Well, just fascinating. And I, like you said, it's 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 easy in the sense of there's just so much to explore that even a novice can get out there and can find something new. And water's forever under are changing. The water you explored one day, a week later, could be completely different under, underwater. Absolutely. Now, above ground, skydiving wingsuiter you've raced falcons high altitude jumps do you remember your first jump 
And then what have some been some of your favorite jumps, locations to jump over? Yeah, so um, my football, I was a paratrooper. I was airborne uh, forces in the in the army. So my first jump was out of a Hercules plane, uh, but it was a static line jump. So we jumped from sort of 600 feet, or 800 feet, I can't remember. Anyway, um, on a static line, um, so you're not in free fall skydiving. You're actually, you jump out the plane and you're, you're parachute immediately pulled and you've got a massive bag and like a big army rucksack of kit strapped to your legs and you know yeah. rifle strapped to your legs that's stuff so that and that's over very quickly because the idea is you get out of the plane on the ground as quick as possible because when you're in the air under under a parachute you're very vulnerable to people shooting at you so you know you jump out the plane and seconds later on the ground um my first proper skydive i learned the skydive in spain uh, because well it was just difficult to do it in the uk because the uk weather's a little bit um well, you know, not always great for skydiving. Yeah. Um, and it's pretty scary. It's pretty scary. I, I always say this, that, that I, I, I read up all the, the US and the UK parachute associations because they produce really good um, some incident reports every year. So I read about them, about, about where things go wrong, what people do wrong. You to try and work out. Again, I, I tend to be quite um, analytical about, about danger and risk and, and trying to sort it out. And then you you uh, you learn about the parachutes and the training and lots of stuff, and then you do your first jump. But you're still bloody terrified because yeah. there's a caveman at the back of your back of your head, that the instinct, and he doesn't understand physics and aerodynamics or 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 or, or, the, or you know the, the US USPA incident reports. He just says that you're about to jump out of an airplane at I think fifteen thousand feet, yeah. and he's terrified. And it takes a while. It took me about 100 jumps before I was completely chilled about jumping out a plane, you know. And even now, if I take, if I take, if I take a few months off, you still got a little bit of just, oof, but, but and now, you know, just the first jump, it's gone off the first jump. It's just that first jump of the day after a, few, after a period of, as we're having now with, with coronavirus, that I've not jumped for months. So, um, you know, you see that shakeout jump. And then since then, I've done some, yeah, phenomenal jumps. Some wingsuiting in the States and in the UK has been good. I did a, a high altitude, high opening jump for a BBC science documentary over Arizona. That was stunning. You know, you're jumping out from about 28,000 feet. So you're roughly the same height as Everest or, or the commercial airliners fly at. And I was on my own. I was sort of self-filming it. Um, and I jumped out of this plane. And the whole, like, the entire world, you know, the weather obviously in Arizona in the desert, you can see for hundreds mm. of thousands of miles and you see forever. Um, that, that was pretty, pretty special. Um, and the good thing was is that because I left the aircraft and immediately pulled my parachute, um, I had about almost an hour up there to float around, just wow. enjoy, enjoy enjoy the world. It was cold. It was minus 16 at altitude when I got out of the plane, and it was plus 42 in the desert. Wow. About that Celsius. Yeah. I, don't know, I've, I've never been able to translate that to Fahrenheit. You guys can do that. <laughs> um, and then uh, speed skydiving. So I competed speed skydiving, uh, which is – you know, the fastest human-powered sport in the world. It's very simple. Uh, you get the plane and you go as fast as you can and the fastest person wins. And it's all about your maximum speed. Um, so I've done, I think, 278 miles an hour um, and I'm not very good. I've got a mate of mine who's an ex-world champion. He's done like 320-odd. So I've done I've done some of that. I was meant to be competing in the Skydiving World Cup for Team GB this year in Russia, but I think that's probably going to be cancelled uh, because of coronavirus which I'm pretty gutted about. Um, but yeah, I've done, I've, I've done stuff like I, I work with friends of mine who work for the UK space community, um, testing some little electric jet turbines 
that were strapped to my legs and I jumped out planes to see if they would increase my thrust and if I could sort of fly with them, which I couldn't. But, you know, I, I quite enjoy that sort of uh, that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's skydiving has been, uh, been been quite an interesting skydiving career. And um, it's something I, list, I, I love doing. It's quite a, I do find it quite a relaxing thing to do. Um, and it's a very social thing to do because you're in, a, you're in free fall for a minute. But um, most of the time you're with your friends. You know, the friends on the ground. And they get in the aircraft, you're with your friends, you jump out the aircraft, you're with your friends, you 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 part just before you open your parachute, you float to earth and you meet them in the ground. So apart from that bit under under like under your canopy yeah. for those sort of two or three minutes, you are hanging out with your mates. And you only do it when the weather's nice. So that's always good. Another advantage of uh here in, in, in Arizona, like I mentioned to you earlier, Eloy, I've I've been to that facility as well hopefully to go back but there's another one next time you're in arizona try buckeye it's another one maybe not as high you'll get but it's another uh where you can see forever so i recommend that next time you're out you've also rock climbed mm-hmm. around the world including in greenland mm-hmm. uh, what have been some of your memories or perhaps uh, scariest climbs and and tell me more also about greenland because i don't typically think of of mountains when i think of greenland well it was um the climbing greenland was actually ice climbing uh mm-hmm. on rock climbing um so we're up there again for a sort of joint. It was a, it was a, it was a science expedition, which, which was also being filmed by the BBC. Um, and we'd scientists from all glaciologists from the UK and from Canada and the US um, looking at icebergs and iceberg formation and glaciation and, and obviously the climate change and that sort of thing. And I was there predominantly as the, the diver and mountaineer, which includes some ice climbing, which is amazing because you get to climb on this, you know, on a glacier, there's just all sorts of, some not as stable as others, bits of ice cliffs. And you got to do a little bit of climbing on an iceberg. Um, so that was that was pretty cool. And see some ice caves. Though you you I pitched my tent right on the very edge of this this sort of cliff. Imagine that a a, a glacier is a giant frozen river, uh, and the river banks are these two mountain ridges. And on one of the mountain ridges was our base camp for about a month. And and I pitched my tent right on the very edge of the cliff. And uh, so that I could see the, the, the carving front of the glacier through my tent. And you've seen these carvings happen all the time. And, and we were climbing once near the near the front of it. And we heard this rumble. And we're like, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> we jumped back in the helicopter and took off. And then we, we, go, we go back to the camp. It wasn't right away. We go back to the camp and landed. And then this massive carving event happens. Huge iceberg um, peeled off the front. And we're like, <sighs> Wait, let's let's not go that close to the front again. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's other things like we did. We, we, we I abseiled into this big ice cave, um, and without it was the first person to ever go in there. You absolutely know, this this amazing, like almost beautiful, called a moulin, which is French for French for windmill, and it's because it's created by water that sort of spirals down and bores a huge hole in the glacier. So I abseiled down there on my own, and then you sort of climb me inside it, and you know, you're in this amazing white blue kind of underground ice palace that say, no human being has ever been in before that's that's pretty special yeah and maybe no human being will ever go again as the ice continues to move yeah and change what are some of the other aside of uh, greenland would have been some of our most memorable climbs that you've done um i mean one in the uk actually I did, a, I did a thing in the uk called the old man of hoy which is this um sea stack it's probably about 500 feet high mm-hmm. um it's quite famous it's probably one of the most famous climbs in in the uk but I uh, I got to climb it with a guy called Leo Holding, who is one of the sort of top 
climbers in the UK and has been for decades. And someone called uh, Sir Chris Boynton, um, who if anyone is listed this as a mountaineer, even even in the States or, or out to the UK, will recognise the name. You know, Chris was a legend in the 60s, 70s, 80s as you know, one of the world's top mountaineers and climbers. Um, and we did it to celebrate his 80th birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I met this guy who's a, you know, he's like the elder statesman of British mountaineering. Yeah. And, and they say, oh, I never meet, your, you never meet your heroes. He was exactly as lovely as I thought he would be. He was just a nice guy. 80 years old. And again, for the climbers watching, it's, it was, I think it's, an, it's an E1, which I think in American grades would be about a 5'10 plus, about above a 5'10, so you know, pretty stiff grade to climb, and he was doing it at 80 years old. Mm. Um, that was impressive. So yeah, that, that's one of my, my, my highlight climbs, I think. Oh, that's, that, and that's fantastic. Now, with, with everything you do action-wise and adventure-wise, did you actually enjoy writing the book? It's a challenging accomplishment. A lot of pressure that, which I, I know you enjoyed the pressure, but did you enjoy it? And then also, why did you choose to write it? Yeah, I I did. The book, I mean, I wrote the book quite a few years ago now. It's a bit, it's a bit kind of it's a bit out of date, but um, I did. I, you know, so it wasn't my idea actually. Mm. Uh, I I went to publishers. I've got this idea to write uh, a book about beginner adventures in the UK. You know, snorkeling. I was just talking yeah. about. You know, um, stand up paddle boarding, sit on top paddle. You know, kayaking. Not not proper sea kayaking because that's you new. Know, you go for, you've got to do a course for that, or it's quite a bit more advanced. But stuff you can just literally anything going to do tomorrow. Um, scrambling, kind of you know, camping, bushcraft camping, but really easy stuff, really basic stuff that I, I, a mum or a dad could take their kids and go and do tomorrow. That's, yeah. And they said, yeah, it's not a bad idea, but we would like to write a book called Extreme Adventures in the UK. And, uh, and obviously, I was like, well, it's a bit niche because. You know, no one else in the UK is going to be interested in it. Although, actually, I've sold a few in America, not many, but a couple. <laughs> um, you know, but it, it wasn't self published. They, they said, well, we'll pay you in advance. It's like, well, if you're going to pay me, all right, you know, you, you tell exactly. me if you if you want to write that book, I can easily write it. So, yeah. you know, if you can pay me, then okay, I'll shut up and thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I write three books. Yeah, how many? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want it to be just another look at me, I'm awesome, I've gone and done this, and now I'm going to type me going and doing this, and then I'm going to, I tried to make it, I mean, there isn't anything to be better that, but I tried to make it more about, look how amazing the British countryside is, so we, you know, we were a relatively small island, but we've still got all this amazing, we've got mountains and forests and rivers and lakes and seashores and islands around us, so, you know, um, there's still this potential, there's no excuses, what I'm saying, for, for not kind of going out and having adventures. So there was that, but also to try and kind of teach people some stuff slightly covertly. So there's one um, chapter about how I thought, right, from, a, from a, a, a sort of trekking point of view, what's the longest distance you can walk in the UK without crossing a road, you know, stuff. Mm. But during that, I, I speak about, you know, contour lines and maps and a compass and all that. And, and you kind of, and if you read that chapter, by the end of it, you should have basic understanding, if you've no knowledge about how a compass works and what actually, how a map, what a contour line is, you know, those sort of things that often, you know, so it was written for the complete layman. And then the diving chapters, you know, I explain what a rebreather is and how it works, you know, um, what scuba gear is and how that works. So there's kind of, I wanted to take time and not just tell a story you know, but try and make a character, a lead yeah. character of the environment and also 
kind of give people a little insight of, of, of the sort of kit we do and how to do stuff. Again, try and encourage them. The idea was still to try and encourage people, okay, I've done this, this is the, the extreme end of things, but actually here's places you can start uh, if this is something you're interested in. Wow, wasn't that fantastic? To hear more of the conversation, check out episode 49 and be sure to follow Andy on social media. My new book, Curiosity, is currently available on Amazon. Curiosity celebrates the knowledge that strangers have to offer. Everyone has unique expertise and endless wisdom awaits the perpetually curious. Featuring 200 episodes from the Any Given Runway show, Curiosity explores the diverse lives of athletes, adventurers, and performers. From daring voyages across the Atlantic to unforgettable performances in the West End, Curiosity celebrates the sophisticated thing we call life. Everyone has a story. Each person is a scholar. Thank you for listening. Fill up that passport. I'll see you on the road. Aviento. <laughs>